This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. Paul Verschur here with the Convergent Science Network podcast. Um, I'm here with uh, Victor Yisra. Victor, welcome. Uh, you were speaking today at BCBT 2018 about translational neuroscience with a very strong emphasis on a more, that's a whole brain perspective on epilepsy. Right, so there, there, there are two issues here. Um, wh- why, why epilepsy? Why do you think epilepsy is a helpful if not lever to understand how brains work or, or not work? Enough. So first of all, hello, <laughs> nice to be here. Um, uh, I have chosen epilepsy uh, for a variety of reasons, yeah? but uh, epilepsy is a dynamic disorder. It expresses itself through very characteristic uh, features, spatially and temporally. Temporally, you you have high frequency oscillations that are, if you have the electrodes, if you happen to have the electrodes in the brain, that are visible. With uh, uh, with the eye uh, essentially, so you have very clear data features that you can recognize that are then also linked to uh, the uh, uh, semiology, to the signs, to the clinical signs when the seizure onsets. That makes it unique. Yeah, it's also spatial because uh, it involves a network. We talk about epilepsy spread; the seizure spreads through the network. From a perspective of someone who wants to model the brain, someone who wants to understand uh, emergent brain function or dysfunction, uh, here the you don't have to look for the features. They are evident. They have been documented for a long time. They are linked to characteristic behavioral patterns. Yeah? When you look at other uh, diseases or disorders linked to the brain it's much more difficult what you do with schizophrenia what you to do with bipolarity what you do even with multiple sclerosis where you have a structural equivalent uh, when you want to measure the function or the impaired function what you look at at the in the data in the measurements yeah it's extremely difficult so even already at the first starting point you run into difficulties and epilepsy promised for me a wonderful entry point uh, enabling me to apply some of the tools that were under my control. Yeah. So how long ago did you start with uh, epilepsy? Epilepsy, we started uh, seven years ago. I followed epilepsy before a little bit but more as an interested observer fascinated by the dynamic features um, but epilepsy per se the fe- first time I touched epileptic data was seven years ago mm. so epilepsy was was among the Greeks known as the holy disease or, or the sacred disease the sacred disease right because it was believed that this that had supernatural features so, so what are the key features in epilepsy that you think you should try to understand and, and control? There are is a number of features that come 
to the mind. Uh, it's epilepsy is fairly widespread in their uh, uh, in its expressions. It depends on the type of epilepsy that you uh, look at. Yeah? Today in uh, today's talk, I saw, showed you a patient with a frontal prefrontal organization of the network involving the temporal lobe, and uh, there uh, the behavioral features are fairly expressive in the sense of uh, behavior. These were normal behavioral features. You would not know, you, if you isolate some of these features, you would not think that uh, this is an epileptic seizure, uh, seizure such as rocking of the body or crossing the legs. Yeah? So uh, in other features, you just have these muscle spasms uh, in other seizures. Yeah. Uh, one of the key features we need to get under control is when the seizure propagates and spread out through the network, it starts taking away control for the patient. This is one of the most horrible experiences for the patient, that the patient uh, uh, starts uh, losing control of his or her uh, behavior. And that is often not linked to the onset of the seizure, but actually to the propagation of the seizure. So uh, when you talk about some of the features we would have to get under control is to improve the quality of life for the patient. If we can limit this type of impairing features on the behavioral level and uh, just constrain the epilepsy, the uh, discharge, from propagating, from spreading through the network and recruiting other features, other areas, this would be a wonderful feature to get under control. Another feature that often is being evoked is a loss of consciousness, when, uh, which is also often linked to the propagation of the seizure. Uh, th this is horrible for a patient when he, she knows that she can lose consciousness uh, at any moment now, when the aura appears then uh, uh, the patient already knows I may be able to lose consciousness and driving a car this is very debilitating and uh, um, constraining feature for the uh, patient right. yeah. so now you pointed the way to an important step then in your approach right because the, the surprising thing certainly I guess for the classics the, the symptoms could be so variable it might indeed be loss of consciousness, it might be vocalizations, it might yeah. be movements, right? In the end, going back to the same underlying deficit, but if you all look at, at, at the, the surface of expressions of symptoms, indeed, it looks very mysterious. But so, so on, on those grounds, you already said, look, it's a network, it's, an, it's a network deficit, right? So, so would you really uh, describe it in those terms? You would see epilepsy really as a network pathology? I would describe it as a network disorder. Mm -hmm. um, uh, technically speaking, uh, so in this sense, it's not a disease. All of us can uh, have the capacity to show an epileptic seizure. Some of my colleagues even, s even say, even claim that epileptic discharges or the capacity to show epileptic uh, seizures as part of our dynamic repertoire as part of the dynamic repertoire uh, of the brain yeah let's take the sharp wave ripples in the hippocampus right uh yeah but this this more uh 
uh, uh, spatially localized, uh, localized, this is a temporal features. The approach that we have taken uh, is a network approach and uh, reducing it to a statement such as it's the same deficit. Uh, it's uh, simplifying it. Uh, uh, the epilepsies are so different. Uh, it's uh, They are linked to network activation uh, activations that organize themselves. And, uh, the underlying mechanisms may, may be completely different. However, the way how it uh, or the network then expresses itself, yeah, uh, this is then linked uh, to the feature and the subsequent uh, uh, semiology uh, for the patient. So this is then our entry point. We do not. My lab is a highly theoretical quantitative lab composed of mathematicians, physicists, engineers uh, in the institute working very closely together with signal processing engineers, clinicians, neurologists, neurosurgeons, all of us together housed in the same institute. Um, we are not necessarily looking at the genesis of epilepsy and trying to identify the mechanisms underlying the genesis, at least uh, the quantitative part of the group. But we are trying to understand once a network is epileptogenic, the organization of the network that is linked to those features that we were referring to. And uh, which means you could argue that each epileptic network is different. However, certain concepts and principles uh, should be obeyed uh, at least as long as we are looking at it from the network perspective. I'm always coming back to the network because if uh, you look at an individual area with the type of approach we have taken, I cannot make a statement about that beyond some dynamic features, but I cannot make mechanistic statements about that. I can make mechanistic statements in terms of network language about the epileptic network. And coming back to your first question is, this is where the power of our approach lies, where we can, despite the fact that we take a mathematician's approach to epilepsy, uh, it expresses itself through network uh, features. Yeah, right. This is where we can contribute. Yeah. But, but now, in, for which is, you're seeing some really important things now, right? Because look, it's, it's a multi-scale phenomenon, yeah. right? Because there's a local circuit that might generate some dynamics that has some knock-on effect on the surrounding network. So now we go from micro to macro, so there are two levels of organization we should worry about. But this microscopic, if you want, uh, distortion and perturbation can come in many forms, that's what you're saying, yeah. right? But that's maybe not the most important part to understand or, or, or to control with respect to symptomatology, right? What you're saying is, what you really want to understand is then these knock-on effects across the network that will be invariant, independent of what this microscopic deficit exactly is. Now, this is the consequence. So you also see some sort of encapsulation of these two levels of operation. Because it, it also would mean yeah. that, that if, as soon as the network kicks in and starts to switch itself into a pathological state or dynamic, it doesn't matter anymore what you would do to the local pathological circuit. The network now is pushed into this part of the state space where it will give rise to symptoms that you don't want to have. 
this is more or less actually this is exactly what I was saying so you introduce the language of micro macro mm -hmm. so the microcircuitry uh, what I did not say though is that the microcircuitry or the microscopic understanding is not important by no means I'm saying is it's not our entry point towards the understanding of epileptic networks it's extremely important and in fact if you want to intervene with the epilepsy of uh, humans or brain uh, on the microscopic level uh, then uh, pharmaceutics yeah this is where the molecular entry points are this is where you have signaling pathways that uh, where you want to intervene that you want to uh, find the right molecule that has a, a, a right effect and reorganizes the microcircuitry and uh, uh, drives the area away from the, its capacity of discharging. Yeah, So this is important. But very often this uh, magic molecule that does this job, uh, it's simply uh, not to be found. And if you look at the, de uh, uh, the development of uh, drug history, uh, so it goes back roughly 80, uh, 80 years. We have essentially four or five families of anti-epileptic drugs with then multiple uh, branching into subfamilies, etc. But, but, but not more. Yeah? And uh, there, um, f since 30% of uh, all epileptic patients are drug resistant, there you have to find, uh, well, either new drugs or other ways of intervening and this is where we are then coming in and then it's not the microscopic level mm -hmm. yeah well on top of we have two things here right on top of that what are the side effects of these drugs that are being used are they harmless in that sense or do people pay a price for using them i cannot tell you this is not my expertise mm -hmm. yeah i would don't, do not dare to express myself okay. on the side effects good but but the other thing is that that you're saying I understand you have to say the microscopic generator or that kicks that kickstarts this whole process is important because this is of course also reflecting how the field itself is organized and a lot of effort is being put into trying to understand the, the local genesis of, of the, the seizures. On the other hand, as you also said yourself, over the last 50 years you've made actually no progress whatsoever in treating epilepsy. Right? So. I did not say this. In the, over the last 50 years, well, uh, I was talking about spot. surgery. Yeah. In treating pharmacoresistant uh, epilepsy. Okay. And if you average across all epilepsies, yeah, then you have a fairly flat curve in the uh, improvement in the uh, surgery success rate, which averaged across ep all epilepsy types is. Uh, uh, around 50%. Mm -hmm. Temporal lobe epilepsy is better, it's 70%. Frontal lobe is lower, 25-30%. So let's say 50% and it has not improved. Mm -hmm. But that was surgery success. Okay, good. So yeah. I, okay, I, I overgeneralized. However, it's important. <laughs> it's important. Yeah. Yeah, sure, yeah. No, no, that's fine. But still, uh, the, the consequence is still that if you would have to choose today, where you can have the most impact in trying to make progress in treatment of epilepsy, the network might be maybe a more opportune target than the local circuit. If you really want to make progress on, on, on intervention planning, treatment, symptom control, and so on, I, I, if I understand you correctly, you're, you would have good reasons to go for the network as opposed to the microscopic generator of the seizure. 
Yeah. I would be very comfortable with this state. I would be comfortable with this uh, statement. Uh, uh, from the perspective of making the biggest progress um, on the microscopic mechanistic level it's important to continue there's no question about this but there are also many codependencies yeah so this magic mo molecule it in the testing that is being performed there are codependencies on other factors etc so it's uh kind of uh, one of these blue sky uh, projects that we talked about earlier that uh, we, we need a clear plan and uh, agenda organizing our thoughts in order to move forward more structured on the network level though there it may be there we have at the moment we may approach a tipping point uh, at the moment, we get more and more technology that becomes available to interact, to modulate the network. Stimulation is one, uh, for instance. Different types of uh, stimulation become uh, uh, available. Non-invasive surgery. Non-invasive surgery does not exist. Right. Uh, uh, less invasive or minimally invasive surgery, such as thermocoagulation or laser uh, surgery, where you enter into the brain through very little drill holes and are able to uh, make uh, ablations at uh, little uh, volumes in the brain that can help, again, network concept, to re-equilibrate the network. And there, so there we have a battery of tools that allows us to give access. What we need is an understanding of how to uh, use these tools in a uh, in a well-informed manner and there we are at the beginning really really at the beginning we have realized that the epileptophocus uh, uh, is actually an epileptogenic network it's an epileptogenic zone spread sometimes uh, very focal sometimes uh, disparate with topologically non-connected elements uh, that the propagation network can be uh, widespread, so it's clearly a network phenomenon. Uh, how, how can we how can we make use of that without generating huge cognitive deficits? Because that is always when you interfere with the network, uh, you generate cognitive deficits. Can we ask questions or build decision-making software guide the surgeon of making an informed intervention? minimally invasive, uh, reducing maybe just the uh, epileptic seizure, propagating and minimizing the uh, cognitive, cognitive deficit. So there are loads of possibilities. And this is where I hope that models can contribute a lot in the future. And then there will be other ways of uh, uh, interfering. It doesn't have to be uh, surgically, but there may be some... Uh, um, uh, drugs that will be delivered locally, for instance, yeah, that can turn on off uh, populations, yeah. So there will be other possibilities. Electroceuticals, right? It might all be non-invasive. Yeah. God knows. Yeah. But you're saying two things that really stand out, right? One, on the one hand, what you are announcing is sort of a revolution of of moving away from this idea of the broken brain, like oh, some molecule is missing. And if I just now reinsert that molecule, then everything will just restore itself to normal. Like, 
and from there you move more to to a network medicine perspective on on brain pathology and i think this you, you are i think really are one of the the big examples of that movement i think right now in neuroscience and it's an important one we have to really i think appreciate that also see it as a very important development in how we how we think about neuropathology. Would you agree with that, or do you think I'm, I'm really exaggerating now? I would agree with it that the network science is definitely entering into medicine, into computational medicine, and the network thinking. Um, is it a revolution? It's changing the way how people think about. Uh, uh, brain disorders definitely in epilepsy but also because of the successes about the progress we made in epilepsy uh, they start thinking about how can we think differently about other uh, disorders or diseases also so i agree with the fact that i i, I wouldn't be hesitant to say it is a revolution yeah but uh, it's definitely one of the hot topics at the moment. This computational medicine with a network idea, number one, and uh, then link it to personalized medicine of being able to um, um, render a network patient specific. Suddenly we talk about virtual brains of my virtual brain and uh, it bears lots of promise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, but there are two consequences now, right? So on the one hand, it implies that we move to a non-locality principle. In the past, with the broken brain view, you would also localize the problem somewhere at X, Y, Z, and yeah. this is where we have to now fix the thing. While you are also showing, uh, and also in the results we might touch upon later, that these effects can be, can be not co-localized with the the position of your original, let's say, pathological circuit or lesion. It might actually, the real problem might be sitting somewhere else as a, as a dynamic reorganization of a network, right? So we have to think yeah. about deficits much more in a, in a non-local, global uh, fashion. Uh, but the second thing that you say here, and this is that you show concretely with your virtual brain project, to make progress in network medicine or, or network neuroscience, we must rely on computational methods. We have to start to build models and we cannot just follow simple lookup tables and heuristics to try to solve the problem. Right, so do you really see this as the key strategic step and the, the trajectory that we have to explore now of bringing computational models into the clinic to make progress? Mm. Uh, I, I subscribe to that, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, uh, to the... Uh, you brought up two points. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the non-locality uh, no, non mm -hmm. has been known actually for a while. This is sure. not a yes, new feature. Right. Yeah? Sure, yeah. Or exactly. uh, uh, lesions or injuries uh, in the brain at a particular location causes deficits uh, in functions that are officially localized in completely other uh, uh, brain regions. So this is... Uh, uh, th this has been well known. We can invert that and actually uh, make use of this and uh, propose, and this is a far from standard, uh, propose interventions at a different brain region that is actually not involved 
in uh, the network disorder, but then has a positive effect upon the network organization, network function. Yeah, this is a logical consequence, so, isn't it? Yes. And the, this to find, and now I'm coming to your uh, second point. How how can we empirically find ways of doing this? For the negative parts, namely injuries in areas causing uh, deficits in other subnetworks, we run into this in, uh, through accidents uh, empirically. But the positive, the interventional therapeutic aspect, we cannot run into uh, by a coincidence. Uh, so uh, what, uh, we cannot simply uh, operate blindly on uh, human beings. We need a strategy. And how do we do this uh, in silico modeling? Yeah, we understand the network better, at least on the network level of a human being, the brain network, and we try to test out in silico new interventional strategies that cannot, for ethical reasons, performed in the human being. Yeah, and uh, for practical reasons, not in the animal model because you cannot stimulate all different areas. So. Uh, all that remains at the moment are in silico approaches. But ha having understood these concepts, it brings up these in silico uh, approaches as a vision for the future. We have the computational powers nowadays. Yeah, uh, We have high performance computing in, uh, structures. We have the data science that can support it. So I think it's a no brainer in quotation marks that the trends are going into the direction of uh, uh, brain network in silico modeling. Right. No, yeah. look, I, I completely it, get that. And the logic that I just proposed is completely independent of personal preferences. It's. Sure. Uh, but surprisingly, yeah. even though you call it a no-brainer, it's not widely adopted yet. So there's apparently there are apparently some obstacles we have to overcome, right? So so we're not there yet. So and mm -hmm. one now of course the, the crux of of the matter is okay. What makes a good model? And and in your case. What you, you, you made a very strong point for mean field models of, of the whole brain with emphasis on the neocortex, right? As a, as a way to then start to get a handle on, that, on, on the dynamics of the brain and health and disease. So, so why do you believe mean field models are the way to go? In, on the level of organization that we look at in my laboratory the activity of individual brain regions as when it's being communicated to other brain regions uh, uh, that expresses their, uh, itself for the communication is sufficiently described on the mean field level. We are validating this with high dimensional microscopic uh, simulations where we use uh, uh, single neuron models, not very detailed single neuron models, but spiking neuron uh, uh, models. And when we perform these very high dimensional simulations and mimic uh, these activations in the large brain network, it takes a long time to simulate. But uh, we find so far the same uh, consequences for the network and our understanding of uh, the network's organization. For this reason, if you ask network questions, uh, it is sufficient 
to perform the mean field modeling at least in our hands in uh, our laboratory if you want to pose these network questions and mimic them into or not mimic them uh, direct them into other directions uh, may probably linking to microscopic underpinnings then you have to go beyond that yeah we are not doing this at the moment we tr we seek the proximity to the patient and the clinic yeah the microscopic underpinnings are in many cases performed in the uh, experimental laboratory not necessarily in the clinic unless you extract human tissue etc etc so the mean field model allows you to collapse the microscopic dynamics across thousands and not millions of neurons into single state variables right where you just say look this whole yeah. population here i can basically capture with one state variable that might evolve over time in some multiple case. state variables yeah. yeah not one but multiple well, yeah but not many but a few depends, a handful yeah, yeah. Um, but, but so the question then becomes what's your benchmark right so uh, what what are for you the dominant benchmarks to validate that, that very abstract compressed view of brain dynamics what, what is really the benchmark the gold standard you feel today to validate such a mean field model um, the what is being done in the literature and in the community is used uh, paradigms such as uh, stimulation um, and uh, stimulate a microcircuit composed of these millions of neurons and then you get these firings of action potentials of spikes there you have certain features uh, with the raster plots with the particular statistics and uh, so that's the way in which, which you, you visualize it or assess it but would it be like the resting state network is that for you reference and this is where I'm going to. Okay, so uh, this is what is being done in the community mean field. Mean field does not make any statement about sure. networks yet. Exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mean field doesn't make any uh, reference to networks yet. It's a localized population. So most mean field uh, modelers, mathematicians that work with that uh, look at these uh, features. What we do in our hands, the mean field has to uh, represent uh, fr uh, the same uh, propagation, for instance, through the network when you stimulate and then the same sequence of brain regions is being activated. Um, we have not looked at resting state activity, yeah. but what we have looked at is we take a very simplified uh, network model with a reduced architecture and implement it with uh, detailed microscopic neuronal features and then with mean fields and then we obtain under a parameter modulation for instance connectivity or time delays we obtain the same uh, behaviors such as uh, increase of synchronicity uh, the spatial reorganization at a particular value of the control parameter that we manipulate, etc. So we want to manipulate network features and then we get the same behavior. This is what we have done. We have not validated this in a full connectome-based brain network models where we have a full implementation of spiking uh, neuronal networks with a connectome 
versus a mean field based model. The mean field based uh, brain network model we have done, we have published with this over uh, for over 10 years and well right? uh, it's yeah. well established sure. nowadays. Many labs are working this uh, with these type of concepts. Uh, there are efforts within the Human Brain Project trying to generate the neuroinformatics uh, frame in which we can do these uh, high-dimensional microscopic networks, but it's not done yet. There are efforts from the Diesmann lab in Jülich, there are efforts from my group, uh, there are mixed efforts in the sense that uh, we uh, build a network uh, partly composed of mean fields and partly composed of these uh, high-dimensional microscopic networks to demonstrate, this is called co-design, to demonstrate uh, that we get uh, the same dynamics. But this is, all this is still unpublished. Mm -hmm. So these are efforts uh, for validation, mm -hmm. and it's crucial and critical, but yeah. efforts for validation for which the first results will come out in one year, two years, three years, yeah? But it's all uh, going in place. Yeah. But this, this sounds like validation against more microscopic electrophysiology, right? Whether you can capture that correctly. But given, given the, the huge amount of, of work already done in mean field models, yeah. I assume that within that community, there must be a, a sense of having gold standards for the validity of these, of these models. No? Because there also have been plenty of publications of mean field models describing the whole neocortex uh, doing something, right? Yeah. So, so, so today, if you today would have to list such a such a gold standard benchmark to to calibrate a mean field model of the whole brain, what would it be? It's uh, we are, here. We are running into a situation where you have uh, to the, terminate the interview. Uh, no, <laughs> yeah, I'm leaving. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> no. Uh, it's less a model that is the problem, but it's more the metrics that you use to describe the resting state activity and the data feature that you use to calibrate and validate the model. And uh, uh, one of the standards, and uh, since you ask for gold standards, established today is in connectomics, the notion of uh, uh, functional connectivity, which even there I said the notion of because there are multiple metrics available for functional connectivity and every single one of them is questionable to some degree because uh, these metrics collapse much of this information into a very compressed uh, uh, object and we know that uh, mostly this very compressed object of functional connectivity requires stationarity. We know it's non-stationary. We cannot measure for longer than typically 20 minutes uh, resting state uh, activity in the human. So we run into issues of describing correctly uh, and or quantifying and with a proper metric what we measure. And then uh, you wanted to calibrate the, the uh, gold standard in order to compare the mean field models. Um, there are, you could take some data fitting approaches, but that's not good enough. You, uh, in the naive sense of data fitting, you will always find a minimum, yeah? And, uh, or a maximum, uh, depending on what you're looking for. 
And uh, if you become more sophisticated, nonlinear with uh, uh, nonlinear Bayesian inference techniques that allow sample uh, sampling on nonlinear manifolds, then we are not there yet that these methods can converge and provide us with uh, good outcomes. The diagnostics is in place, but the, the methods may never converge in our lifetime. So uh, at the moment for this type of validation, it's not the mean field network model that poses a problem. It's a, uh, in go-between, the metrics that uh, shall be used for validation. How do you quantify a spatial temporal trajectory evolving in a high dimensional space that is uh, undergoing a, a random a random process yeah with some so deterministic features the situation is worse than than initially expected right yeah because even if you had the gold standard you wouldn't even know how to sort of quantitatively match to it uh, exactly mm -hmm. or i could uh, even uh, pervert it even more I build a virtual brain. I tell you it's conscious. How would you test it? Yeah, You may not even be uh, capable of recognizing. I don't want to go in direction consciousness. I just said conscious. We can, but, no uh, <laughs> but uh how would you, what type of metrics would you sure. have to apply yeah, in really order to go there? And right. I think this is something that we are uh, suffering mm -hmm. from in uh, system neurosciences. We cannot simplify, in order to be uh, close to the patient or to real-world applications, we cannot simplify everything to a, a state, and then we just describe the state or the statistics of the state. It's a dynamic process. Mm -hmm. So we need a process-based signal analysis. Right. But I completely get that, and I, and I agree with you. But So I'll, I'll, I'll confess that, for me, the mean-field approach has never been that convincing, even though it's always presented to me with a lot of confidence, right? Because in some sense, it has always been anchored to very slow signals. The, 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 the majority of mean field models have been calibrated against fMRI data, right? Which is very coarse, a very, very, very um, a low pass filtered representation, both spatially and temporally, of what goes on in the brain. So if we move to this low dimensional state space, in some sense, many abstract models can do a good job, right? So, um, so this is, aren't we a little bit overconfident at this point in time about the power of these mean field models? I mean, you could argue that, that for the low, the low dimensional uh, state space, they're sort of super powerful. They'll always work. They'll always capture these dynamics. For that, you have enough free parameters. Not a big deal, right? You can always do it. But for instance, look at if you go to a more realistic state space, for instance, we work with stroke patients, we have shown recently that they have um, dysrhythmia, as in Parkinson's. So you get dynamic fluctuations in the cortex that, that appear transiently and that are a result of what's playing out in the thalamus and in itself is gonna result in what goes on in the cortex, right? So, so you have rapid shifts in the dynamics that's playing out in, in, a, in, a, in a broad frequency range. So my mean field model would not trivially capture that just like that, right? I'm, I'm playing a different game now, right? So, so, the, so the concern I'm having, and so maybe you can, can resolve this for me, that yes, we have built all these tools and they're fantastic and many people got tenure with these kinds of models, it's great, but it's all anchored to, to sort of low dimensional dynamics. Where we really wanna be are these, high, as you described, these high dimensional transient dynamical states 
to which they might never really generalize. So, so would it not be wise at this point in time to also say, well, we learned a lot using mean shield models, we've identified a lot of the problem, we, we learned to appreciate the real problem we're facing, but maybe mean field models are now essentially not that helpful anymore as a tool. We should move on and think more about, let's say, multi-scale, dynamically configured networks that operate at micro and macro level simultaneously. Would you go in that direction or would you still feel that there's a lot of leverage to be gotten from the mean field approach? I feel there is still a lot of leverage to be uh, gotten from the mean field um, for the following reasons. You, the way you argued is that the mean field uh, modeling has found mostly application in the resting state literature of the fMRI. I would uh, say no, uh, mean field models have been used in the resting state network literature and even very phenomenological models, yeah, uh, as you correctly pointed out, a simple model is fully sufficient. We don't need four or five dimensional models. It's we, uh, just a simple phenomenological oscillator may already capture uh, many of the features that are being observed, why it's network effects. And with that, I, I agree, actually. They are spatially filtered, they are temporally filtered, but uh, uh, and if you just look at temporal or spatial configurations, it's probably not very insightful what you do in the resting state network literature. You have to look at spatial-temporal features. And there it, it's becoming interesting. And there, having talked about the non-stationarities, you need nonlinear models that have certain characteristics that are then being informed by the connectome. But in fMRI, due to the nature of the signal, looking at non-stationaries and the fMRI signals, there we are already at the front line of the of the research. Yeah. Uh, uh, but having said this, mean field modeling has by far not just uh, been applied to uh, fMRI signals. Uh, this is fMRI modeling neurovascular coupling, yes, uses mean fields, but uh, you can have multi-level, multi-scale, uh, mean field models uh, using uh, the uh, super, infra and granular uh, uh, layers and assigning a mean field or neural population, neural mass to each of these layers, interacting with multiple scales, interacting with uh, different types of connections, slower and faster connections in order to introduce a temporal multi-scale architecture in there, which has been very important example is for instance, the work of Fabrice Wendling who was performing following uh, stimulation paradigms and capturing some of the response features. There we're talking about neuroelectric signals on time scales that are relevant for uh, the processing time scales we encounter in the brain for the uh, for the spectral features that we are familiar with for the different bands uh, uh, rhythmic bands uh, that we are familiar with and there uh, these mean field models are not just simple uh, scalar elements that are just shifted around on a linear equilibrium point and reorganizing the networks as in the resting state literature no here here we have to work with detailed uh, organizations that uh, can be stimulated, that propagate through the network, uh, that have continuous propagation through the gray matter, that send signals through the uh, white matter, 
this is being done. I agree. Uh, it is the, the it is the beginning. I fully agree with that. But uh, your question was, can we still gain some leverage out of this? And uh, yes, yeah. Yeah, but, but I see there's a there's a sort of a conceptual problem here that the definition of mean field model is a bit shifting, right? So you have this famous quote from from Norbert Wiener that the best model of a cat is a cat and preferably the same the cat. The same cat. Yeah. Right? But what he means with that is to model means to abstract, right? And and in some sense, what I hear you say is, with, well, as long as we abstract, I can call it mean field, right? Why do you hear this? Well, because you're saying I have mean field models that would take into account organization at different layers in the cortex, specific cells, and so on. It just means you change the granularity of the averaging that you that you perform. Is what right? we are performing, yeah. yes. So, so that they then, have certain properties such as sure. adaptation, and then the in the different layers you have uh, different populations, sure. no, no, and I, this I is being that. reflected. Right. But but, yeah. but that means yeah. if you go to the the mean field models of of a, uh, some time ago, that was more a closer link to let's say statistical physics. Yes, that we they really made those I think a stronger claim of the boundary because those mean field models also had the the, 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 the objective or at least the ambition to to collapse them into some sort of master equation that with which you can really describe the macroscopic dynamics of that system. So it was yeah. really the search for this abstraction to also in the end have an analytical handle on that system. Well what what you're saying now the way I take it, which is not necessarily criticism, it's just it just means we have to think a little bit what we mean exactly with the mean field model. Is that you know, as as long as I'm averaging in some sense, as long as I'm collapsing detail into state variables, I'm, I'm using a mean field model, and therefore the mean field model can scale and, and and be diversified in all possible directions. But if something starts to represent everything, it represents nothing, right? So what then do we really mean with mean field? And are we uh, maybe we should then also should, would it be useful to start and then also give more specific labels to this granularity of modeling, right? Like the number of free parameters we are going to allow, the commitment to analytic solutions or not, right? So, 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 uh, don't you feel that you're sacrificing a little bit the specificity of the meaning of a of a mean field approach? Only to. No, uh, I'm. Uh, we are still in my comfort range um, I would not be willing my comfort range uh, is probably limited up to this point where we go across the individual layers I would not go any further um, in terms of granularity because at some point it doesn't make any sense but in terms of abstraction uh, it again uh, reduces to what I want to explain, what type of signals I want to explain, what type of phenomena I want to explain. And the explanatory power of a mean field benefits from the layered organization and propagation through the gray matter, but also then through the white matter fibers. But I would not be comfortable of uh, deconstructing it any further for two reasons it may not uh, 
any further deconstruction or specification may not help in the explanatory power of this uh, uh, the signal that we want to explain number one and number two um, at, at some point uh, this mechanism of averaging um, because uh, of all the detailed architecture, physiological architecture that is present. We have glia cells, astrocytes, etc. It doesn't make sense anymore. Other effects uh, would have to be in t integrated also. Uh, it has its limits. Yeah, You have to have a sufficiently coarse object in order to uh, average across it's uh, inner organization. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. But this is interesting, right? Because it also means it doesn't make sense until it does. Right. So, for instance, if for an epilepsy case, I would find out that some sort of um, uh, infrasupergranular layer distinction would be really critical. Then you would be happily embracing it. Then you would be happy to to, to exceed that boundary that you now draw. Um, pragmatically thinking, I would probably. Uh, uh, I would then probably uh, consider it. I would have to be convinced that it does matter, etc. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And I'm not saying that this distinction does not matter. Mm -hmm. uh, I have certain objectives with the research I want to, uh, uh, that I want to do. I want to reach uh, real-world questions uh, in the clinic. So I'm building the tools that helped me to address this type of questions. Right. Yeah. No, no, yeah. So, so I get it. And, and, but this is important. So for, for the, the field of, of, of mean field approaches, I think it would be useful to have that discussion, to also see, okay, maybe we should look at different types of mean field models and also try to understand their interrelationship again. Mm -hmm. right? It is being actually done, Paul. Uh, and uh, there is a community working on this. Imagine heterogeneity. Neurons in a population are not identical. Yeah, if you just take the most uh, simple feature of them, the uh, threshold distribution. Yeah, how do you take it into account? It actually generates if you have this diversity or no dispersion within the population, which in physical space is zero dimensional. But if a dispersion of thresholds, it already uh, generates a huge. Uh, complexity in the dynamics. I'm talking about the model now. Just in the model, we know that you can have chimera states. The same population. Uh, actually, it's in this case, it's not chimera states, but you can have clustering. Yeah, uh, in the behavior and within the population, you get uh, uh, clusters of similarly behaving neurons due to their similarity. In their physiological constants, but you cannot describe, you ca cannot average over it because some are spiking regularly and others uh, uh, have the irregular spiking frequency that we know, like a, a Parsonian train. So uh, this, uh, what would I do there? And again, uh, if I am aware of these things, I split it in multiple mean fields, right. yeah, and then which means I complexify. And this has been done. This is one mean field model that uh, exists, and it makes sense up to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. But once it's be it becomes uh, non-handleable anymore, 
then it's pragmatic use is pragmatic uh, added value is not there anymore and uh, I would not support this approach to go any further mm -hmm. yeah but now one thing you did to give more structure to your mean field model interpretation was to to move towards very distinct models of different kind of oscillators right and then to use these to sort of if you want to constrain the function interpretation and then, then use that again to go back to your epilepsy physiology to say, I don't need to model this as some mean field network. I can actually re-describe the mean field model as an underlying oscillator, right, with different characteristics, different state variables. And the question is now becomes, of well, this whole family of oscillators, which one best describes the specific bit of, 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 of epileptic state that I'm trying to describe, right? So, so why did you move in that direction? Why did that become then the next step? Because in some sense, you then, gave up the literal whole brain mean field model which said no no i use that to calibrate my oscillator model and the oscillator model becomes now my reference interpreted data right so you actually have collapsed again the mean field model of, of, of cortex into these oscillatory models right so what's the has that given you leverage mm -hmm. or is it sort of more like an experiment that's underway right now and it might not really work out mm -hmm. um it's Interesting that you ask this question. It's actually uh, the way how science sometimes goes. It can be uh, very exciting when you look backwards. Uh, uh, we started off with mean field models. Uh, again, driven by a particular question in the context of epilepsy. That is a propagation through the network. I recognized that a important fundamental characteristic is missing in these mean field models. It's simply not in there. Through the averaging process, through the methodology that is being applied, uh, you essentially lose it. And uh, uh, it, it is a, an additional dimension, an, an additional degree of freedom that we refer to as the slow variable that uh, acts upon another time scale that uh, is not part of the classic mean field averaging but that has certain characteristics uh, that guides the on a slow time scale the mean field dynamics if you wish through a sequence of behaviors and then also the system th uh, from seizure onset through the evolution during the ictal uh, state all the way to seizure offset and uh, that was not something we could overcome we could look into physiology we knew th there are slow processes classics are uh, extracellular potassium the uh, the work of Uwe Heinemann etc uh, there is knowledge in there but that would require an additional mechanistic bottom-up approach developing this and it's multifactorial as we know uh, and uh, we ask the question can we since we are interested in the network question can we find another approach another perspective still capturing this additional feature in there justified by a scientific perspective but maybe different perspective and uh, there we turned to mathematics and uh, 
since we were looking for a slow variable, we tapped into the theorems of nonlinear dynamic systems, fast, slow systems, and uh, we made use of that to abstract entirely away uh, from the physiological interpretation of these variables and looked at the dynamic structure uh, of uh, the representative of this mean field that we needed. Yeah? And we uh, did this very, very systematically. And uh, we learned a lot out of this, um, but it gave us also a new perspective about uh, how to look at seizures, of uh, what features to look at uh, seizures, not physiologically motivated, not mechanistically motivated anymore, but purely dynamic uh, uh, features. And that started a trend in the community in terms of slow variable, onset bifurcation, offset bifurcation, etc. So that is becoming a language now. Uh, th this is exciting. But then looking back, I still remember how I went to my collaborator, Christoph Bernard, who did the physiological testing in the hippocampus. And uh, uh, we were discussing uh, these dynamic features yeah, uh, that the uh, meta mean field or this uh, expanded mean field representation uh, expressed in terms of phenomenological variables should have. And I said, uh, Christoph, I'm... I have a problem with that. There should be a baseline jump that you see in your uh, uh, data in the time series because uh, the bifurcations, the dynamics that we find, there is a baseline jump and it's not in the data. Can I somehow sweep it under the carpet, maybe hide it in the signal to noise ratio? Or what can we do about this? And he said, Victor, what you, ah, but look, these are, AC data that everyone is recording in AC, but I can make the same recordings in uh, DC. Yeah. So he went back to the lab. Yeah. Did the same recording in terms of DC. And because I told him about the slow variable at the same time, he measured also oxygenation and ATP consumption and came back to me and showed me the same recording uh, AC. Yeah. There you didn't have a baseline jump. In DC, you had exactly the baseline jump at seizure onset and offset. Hippocampus in tutor in the rat, exactly as I expected. Very beautiful. And the oxygenation and the ATP consumption traced out very beautifully the time course of the slow variable that we expected. There you could say this is not too surprising because it's, uh, of course, linked to energy consumption and it has to happen when the tissue uh, uh, fires uh, very fast. Well, but it's, and it's, I'm sure it's not the slow variable, but these are representations or expressions thereof, but it became consistent and things came together. And then we uh, went into human tissue. We contacted uh, other institutions, Ikeda in Japan, uh, Milan Brushdeal in Brno, they had also uh, DC recordings from the human tissue. And then for the seizure types that we were looking at, we found the baseline jumps. And this was coming from the dynamic structure of the system. And this is, this was really unexpected, very beautiful and gave us confidence. Different elements started coming together. And uh, now uh, people my colleagues are looking uh, into 
possible realizations of what we call this low variable. Yeah, I mentioned extracellular potassium. Definitely, uh, uh, glial activity are good candidates that may that are linked to the uh, uh, neuroelectric discharges, etc. Right. Yeah? But do you believe that it's the slow variable that is also of most relevance in with respect to the propagation through the network? Um, I have to hypothesize. Uh, you ask believe. Yes, yeah. yes, I do believe mm -hmm. that the slow variable plays a particular role in this. We know that the glial network is tightly connected to the neural uh, network. It's evolving on a slow time scale, much slower than the neuroelectric discharges. Um, we do not know enough about that. Uh, however, I'd like to point out that when seizures propagate and spread, the sometimes it everything discharges uh, uh, the entire network discharges at the same time. Sometimes. Uh, it starts discharging in a particular location. One, two seconds later, it recruits another area. Then it disengages and it recruits another area. So you have a spatial temporal organization on the time scale of seconds. Yeah. What are the mechanisms that are linked directly to this? You need to have some time scale hierarchies there. Not necessarily separate and uh, uh, expressible in. Uh, physically separable quantities such as region 1 and region 2 but may more informational but uh, there must be a time scale hierarchy in order to allow describe this multi-scale behavior mm -hmm. yeah but the consequence of that would then be that you also look at a new generation of network or whole brain or whole cortex models where each node in the network becomes a distinct oscillator coupled through whatever the connectomics has told you, no? Yeah, plus a slow variable that is locally connected to this oscillator mm -hmm. uh, through the connectomics, and then right. this oscillator is coupled mm -hmm. through the connectomics, as you point out. So we look at a co-evolving, uh, a new form of mean field models, co-evolving on two timescales, fast and slow, localized in tissue in space, communicating at least through the connectome, uh, maybe in addition uh, to this also at least locally through a glial network. Yeah. But that would be node, a new generation of mean right, field models. Exactly, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. would every node now cycle in a state-dependent fashion through different models, through, through different oscillatory models? Or would it be just one oscillatory model that is just pushed around in its state space? Uh, because of the external perturbations? I do not know. I cannot tell you. Okay, because yeah. the oscillator you take for the node where you have this, the seizure origin is in some sense a pathological node, right? Where you see the DC shift and the low ver slow variable and so on. This might not necessarily be the right oscillatory model for all the other nodes in the network. Yes. Okay, so, yeah. so, so th there's now, that might be interesting, so it might look like Every node is the, the dynamics is potentially represented by a certain set of oscillators, but now depending on the state of that specific node, I'm either in one or the other. Yeah. Um, we the way we have looked at that so far is we looked at topological equivalence of the parameter spaces. I don't want to make it too abstract, but uh, it's like uh, it, uh, you can identify certain features 
in the properties of the oscillators and then you know that in the neighborhood of this feature uh, in this case it's a type of bifurcation a co-dimension three bifurcation uh, Tarkins Bogdanov uh, you know in this neighborhood all the behavior and all the classes are more or less the same yeah so it's not multiple oscillators but the qualitative behavior of the same oscillator changes as you move around in this type of neighborhood. So it's a local statement and if you wish to call it a pathological oscillator, I'm comfortable with that. Uh, uh, however, I'm not comfortable with making statements that are not somehow in the local neighborhood, but that jump in, into completely different behavioral uh, uh, repertoire somewhere else. I, I simply cannot make any statement about that. Yeah. No, sure. I do not know. Yeah. But we're free to speculate. I would be... I'm free to... You want me to speculate? Of course. I. Uh, there is... The way we looked at it is... Uh, we talk about oscillators. Uh, and we built a generic canonical model around a very characteristic bifurcation point which is a kind of an anchoring point in a parameter space this oscillator has no idea that it's supposed to be pathological or epileptic at the end of the day it's a mathematical object that has certain properties that we are manipulating uh, and that are based on certain proximity principles uh, 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 there are consequences for its behavior and actually there is just a finite number of ways how bifurcation lines can collide and hence there are not so many types of different behaviors that can occur it's almost evident that it's uh, there is a limited repertoire of behaviors in there so having said this and uh, they are in the in uh, interdependent yeah so having said this why i'm speculating uh, this line of reasoning uh, does not apply only to epilepsy. What's about physiological oscillations? What's about uh, up and down states? What's about uh, uh, spindles uh, uh, that occur? Can we apply this to uh, physiological uh, objects or physiological uh, oscillations then uh, characterize them in a similar way? Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe, but it's a little less controlled. They mm -hmm. appear sometimes. They do not. We know they are linked to uh, sleep and wake uh, changes. Uh, uh, in the different sleep stages, there are different behaviors. Uh, um, a similar way of thinking should apply to that also, mm -hmm. and may even, and I'm speculating even further, require the need of a slow variable. So. I would even be comfortable to speculate that we need to generalize this uh, way of thinking of a co-evolving at least two-tiered temporal scale mean field model to the uh, to physiological applications mm -hmm. and say it should apply actually also to that right. yeah that's very beautiful huh? but now look so we made quite a tour here trying to understand epilepsy the, the important, the critical step was to move to a network perspective, 
right, on network science perspective, network medicine perspective, epilepsy. And now, of course, then we have to think about okay, what, what at the heart of that stands called computational model, grounded approach. So, okay, what are these models? But now, if it was up to you, and we really think about the, the full-fledged deployment of this way of thinking to the clinic. So we have infinite time and infinite resource. Now it's there, in the hospital. What do we see? How will this translate to a technology really at use in the clinic or at home? How do you see this realized in the real world uh, down the line? Beyond epilepsy or? Well, let's start with epilepsy. Mm -hmm. um, the way I would like to see it is as a decision-making system that uh, in the real world, we're talking about a real world application now that aids the clinic, a clinician uh, enters in the decision-making uh, uh, process during the patient management conferences. They develop confidence upon this uh, uh, software. It will probably express itself as a software um, and uh, feedback their competences in order to make it better. But uh, at the moment, it's extremely primitive where I would like to see it would be as an in silico platform where we can perform testing, maybe optimization of procedures, but that requires validation, that requires confidence that the predictive value is sufficiently uh, strong enough. There we cannot bypass the animal. However, we can see it as a means at some point once we have generated the confidence to bypass animal experiments because they will be re, uh, uh, substituted by in silico experiments. And then we will have in silico brains of individual human beings where we can optimize procedures, maybe rewire, maybe uh, discover new therapeutic interventions. But it's we have to lean out beyond what we are do out of the window beyond what we are doing right now like with a lesion as we talked about earlier lesioning in an area that is not uh, uh, impacted by the impairment yeah. yeah. so we need to go beyond that yeah and this that we need to find good strategies how to do this otherwise we will never have trust and faith right. in an in silico platform for a particular patient right exactly yeah so this requires a strategy confidence trust building mm -hmm. but especially with the clinicians yeah. right so you're not going in a direction of having devices that will work directly with the patient to help them to control their epilepsy you see it really more going into the clinic to decision decision support for the clinicians to decide on interventions, right? That might mean non-local interventions yeah. in the network affected by epilepsy. Just as an example, the non-local part, but right. there may be other ways but of dealing with it. That would be, if I generalize from that, which I have no difficulties in doing, um, maybe that also means that at some point we do need to carry mm. a model of our brain as part of a medical record because we might have a lesion somewhere. And then to figure out what could go wrong, I need the reference. And the reference is the model for cat is a cat, and preferably the same cat, would certainly hold for us. 
right? So this might be then also a, a, an automatic consequence of the approach that you're following now. Which, reference. which would be wonderful, wouldn't it be? Then we have a reference brain mm -hmm. for you that may have been fingerprinted, data fit, uh, where the parameters through a battery of cognitive tasks, uh, maybe stimulation paradigms, your brain has been, uh, uh, your virtual brain of you yourself has been calibrated and a range of parameters has been identified. Mm -hmm. Then the model parameters themselves become a biomarker mm -hmm. for your health, because uh, uh, maybe we could imagine a ongoing online calibration of the parameters mm -hmm. of your brain model uh, on your favorite app, and then as you get tired, depressed, mm -hmm. I don't know what, uh, your, the parameters get out of a range, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. You could imagine. Now we are dreaming. Now we are speculating, mm -hmm. but. Uh, yes, a virtual brain model entering in your medical records. I think this is not necessarily a bad idea. Right. But the cool thing is that automatically and for free, you achieve the post-humanist dream of downloading your mind into a computer. Who has talked about the mind? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah. we, we think it's isomorphic. Yeah. But then that mean field model you have in my medical record better be correct. The mean field model is a model of a regional activity expression, and you know that very well. <laughs> I'm just provoking you. Yeah. Uh, but, but look, so, so Victor, you, this is really very exciting territory, and you made, you made huge strides in really redefining the challenges and making real concrete progress on answering those challenges and understanding the brain and also having clinical impact. So if we would like to follow in that in that direction, um, what would be Victor's law that we have to adhere to? Can you be more specific? Uh, if we would follow into this direction, which direction? The virtual science, brain. The science. You the science. If you want yeah. Virtual brain. Yes. If yeah. we want to go there, what's what's Victor's law that I should follow? In order to do. To make progress. To achieve the dream you just declared a virtual brain and every medical record mm -hmm. I don't know about Victor's law but uh, the uh, go beyond states think processes mm -hmm. yeah I'm trying to formulate it as a law yeah mm -hmm. but go beyond states think processes let them be spatial-temporal or not but we need a dynamic uh, way of thinking or thinking of the dynamic uh, brain and I would looking back at the history of science this states approach has hampered much of the translational capacity that neuroscience could have had so let's think in terms of dynamics and not just jargon but make put it to use and uh, uh, explore the powers that we have in terms of dynamics to ask different types of questions yeah right so the last question for me is so you you run a, a big center there in Marseille a lot of machinery a lot of support so you, you can really advance this science at, the, at, the, at the, quite a pace so four years from now I'm gonna go visit you in Marseille 
to see whether you've falsified or verified the key prediction that you're going to share with me now. So in your program, what's the most central hypothesis you want to see tested in that four-year time frame? I would be, uh, yeah, the most central hypothesis in a four-year time frame, in the way how we think in Marseille about epilepsy, and here I'm uh, focusing it on epilepsy, is that uh, we can use the network description to... Uh, patient-specific connectomes within the networks that it has a real explanatory power and uh, we can make use of this explanatory power to help the patient and improve uh, 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 the outcome of the therapy which means if we use patient-specific and not generic connectomes. To build virtual brains, we can make better predictions about what should be done in order to help the patient. When you come in four years into my lab in Marseille, I would like to present you with three to 400 patient cases where I have convincing uh, metrics convincing statistical significance that demonstrates unambiguously that using this patient-specific connectome linked to dynamics, dynamic mean fields, has actually improved surgery success or interventional success. Yeah. But wait, let's be specific now. Today's success is 50%, you're saying, right? Of uh, average numbers. across epilepsies, yeah. etc. So yeah. where's the number going to go, the success rate? Uh, you, do you want to pin me down on a number? I, uh, 60%. Improvement by 10%. I'm really shaking this one out of my sleeve. You know that very well. Of course, but you know. But I would like to... <laughs> yeah, we need a bet. Okay, 10%, 10% improvement, 400 patients in four years. Fantastic. Thank you, Yesra. Thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you, Paul. Yeah. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Program. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomedics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.